What even is Shangri-La? It's a made-up place. They made it up for this book and movie called Lost Horizon. The only Shangri-La I know is the hotel chain. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'm Alexi Toliopoulos. I'm Jen Fricker. Welcome to the Big Film Buffet. This right here is a podcast for pop culture fans and people looking for what-to-watch recommendations. Today we're serving up a main course where we'll recommend you a Netflix film for you to watch this weekend. And of all the films you should cast your gaze upon this weekend, we reckon you should spend time with Wish Dragon. I am a Wish Dragon who will grant three wishes to the owner of this teapot. How do you fit in this teapot? Uh, it's... it's so small. <laughs> Look at your little arms. Your face is so soft. <gasps> Can you breathe fire? So we're talking about Wish Dragon. Jen, what is Wish Dragon all about? It is a fun family movie, an animated movie about a young guy called Din who is trying to balance being a student, having a job, growing up and not trying to disappoint his family and how like stressful that is on his life. Mm-hmm. Throw into this, he finds a magical teapot. Inside the teapot, a dragon called Long who can grant him three wishes that change his life. Also, he wants to reconnect with his childhood sweetheart. So... I don't know, put it together, fam. I'm putting it together, fam. And what I'm discovering is this feels very familiar to a fairy tale movie that I love very dearly and probably everyone else loves very dearly, the fairy tale that is Aladdin. Mm. And that's something I really liked about this movie is I like how contemporary it feels. I like that this feels like a very modern and urban set fairy tale that I don't think we see very often in the realm of animation. I feel like when we get a fairy tale animation, it is kind of set in like a made up fantasy world that feels very period set or medieval or something like that. And to see like a modern type fairy tale. Yeah, I felt set in modern quite, Shanghai. It felt very fresh and like Mm. more relatable if you will in a way and you sir are my master so go ahead wish away okay you got me (laughs) where are the hidden cameras great joke guys is this like a hologram or something i assure you not what i really like about this movie is it feels very real very lived in as much as like an animation can Mm. so then it makes all the magical elements much more stark yeah absolutely much more magical much more magical and i think that this is a movie that i would really love to recommend to families with maybe kids that are a little bit younger than the demographic we're talking to with the mitchells versus the machines yeah which i think was a bit more tween centric a little bit more grown-up kids type vibe Mm. i think this will be really good for younger kids with their parents but there's so much in there that I think older kids will still enjoy watching it too with the family for sure it's definitely got that perfect balance of when you're watching a movie for kids but there's jokes for everyone in it jokes for adults too and I did find this movie quite funny like Mm. I genuinely thought it was very funny the animation style is pretty hip and pretty fluid, if you will say. There's some great character animations. And if you'd liked Wish Dragon, I'd recommend another movie to check out that is on Netflix. It's called Over the Moon. Uh, We talked about it on the podcast last year. I really enjoy that movie. I think it's got some very sweet fantasy elements to it and just beautiful, beautiful dreamlike animation. 
Yeah, I was thinking this kind of reminds me of, especially the food in this movie, mm. reminds me of Studio Ghibli films, which we've talked a lot about on the podcast before. But if you're kind of looking for an age-appropriate mm. parallel film, like Ponyo, I think would be oh. the go. If you're kind of yes. wanting to set up, like you're babysitting the cousins or something, you want to set up like a whole bunch Absolutely. of films, this would be part of it. But what you were saying about how funny this film mm. is, the casting is perfect. Like, so many funny people in this gosh darn movie. John Cho playing Long, the Wish Dragon. Yeah. He's so good. His characterization is so good. You might know him from the iconic film Harold and Kumar. Well, Go series to of White film. Castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Escape Guantanamo Bay. 3D <laughs> Christmas. We know them all. Also in there, Constance Wu, who you might know from Crazy Rich Asians, from Fresh Off the Boat, mm-hmm. from Hustlers. I love Hustlers. Uh, we all love Hustlers. Jimmy O. Yang, who is in Space Force, which is on Netflix yeah. at the moment. And a great comic as well. Yep. Ronnie Chang, of course. Another great comedian. Another great comedian, also in Crazy Rich Asians. The characterizations are so good, which just adds that element, you know, of like entertainment. It is that cut through so then yeah, your younger family members mm. can enjoy it and you can too. Exactly. One thing that you just made me think of, Jen, when you were recommending Ponyo, which I mm. think is a great one too with this because Ponyo retells... The classic Hans Christian Andersen tale of the Little Mermaid. And it kind of brings it into a modern setting as well, mm. much like this movie does with Aladdin. And I think that its relationship with Aladdin is very interesting because we know it mainly as the classic Disney animated film and then like some movies on like the 30s and 40s and stuff, which are like the Thief of Baghdad. So we kind of know it as a film centered around like exoticism of the Middle East. Mm. And it has its history in that. We find in the West... Aladdin kind of first comes about in this collection of stories like fables and kind of like the predecessors of like magic realism Mm. uh, in this book called 1001 Nights, also known as Arabian Nights. And so this book and collection of stories has existed for maybe nearly a thousand years. There's stories mainly from the Middle East, like fantasies from there. And once this was translated into French, they incorporated more stories that felt to that audience rather exotic. Mm -hmm. So they were pulling stories more from other countries, other lands, and some of them came from China, including the story that we now know as Aladdin. So this is more, I guess... Uh, representation of where that story originally comes from. Yeah, right. Yeah, I had no idea, but that makes so much sense. It's like tracing it all the way back to the roots of the story. Absolutely. And then making it into a modern Chinese context. Uh, what are you doing now? Well, if you're not going to let me ride you, we got to catch the bus. The bus? Is that some kind of animal? Wait, how long have you been in that teapot? I don't know. Is it still the Qing Dynasty? I don't know too much more about it, though, Mm. beyond the connection to 1001 Nights. Yeah, so it might be time to bring in the most knowledgeable person we know. He's the editor of the Netflix newsletter, Netflix Pause. And if you haven't already subscribed, you simply must. And he's also our producer here, Michael Sun. Welcome. What up? So tell us about the origins of Aladdin. You are very right, Jen. The first version of 
the Aladdin tale. Features Aladdin as a poor youth living on the streets of China. Not at all this like foreigner abroad, not this kind of Middle Eastern tale that we've been used to, but initially definitely this Chinese boy who was struggling to make an income and had to come up with magical ways to do it. Mm. So the actual way that he kind of ended up in... 1001 Nights, that kind of mythology and lore, is actually because this French translator added on the tale of Aladdin that he had heard to his translation of 1001 Arabian Nights. Sacre bleu! As Emmeline Paris would say, (laughs) So, literally, because of the decision of one French person, this story gets transplanted from China to the Middle East. Very much so. And I also think, this is just me completely brainworming now, but I feel like the reason it's then been represented as such in American media, specifically in the Aladdin movie version. Mm. I think it's because of this almost like cultural attitude towards who gets to be considered as a foreigner or exoticization. Mm. And I think especially if we look at, I don't know, migration trends. (laughs) Um, And you know we love to. And we love to look at stats. This is a stats podcast, baby. We love trends and we love things like that. Mm -hmm. So... By the 80s and 90s, when this story of Aladdin was becoming more popularised in mainstream media, there was definitely quite a large Asian-American population Mm. already, whereas I think the idea of Americans viewing who was the actual other, I think they very much latched onto the idea of Middle East as the other. Or it's like they latched onto the idea of the Middle East as some like scary foreign entity, um, which is why the narrative of Aladdin being Middle Eastern and then um, engaging in these like mythical practices just seemed more natural. That's just my theory. That makes sense to me as well. Like that tracks because I think that idea of exoticism in like American film and Hollywood pictures kind of changes from like where it is in like classic Hollywood era where it's like Orientalism meets exoticism becoming one thing to create like a magical mystical place and then changes to kind of become something a little bit more specific in its place. I think that's so true and I think if you look at kind of early cinema you do see this idea of East Asian people being viewed as the other and exoticized. And that was the first real migration trend Mm. into places like England and the US. We see movies like Piccadilly, for example, classic 1929 movie where you get like anime Wong playing this like intruder into this very white scene. But I think by the time that you reach the late 20th century, it had already... As I said, this idea of the other had changed. Mm. There's a movie that just reminded me of, uh, I think it's 1930s and parts of it were lost for a while called The Lost Horizon, which is all set in like this mystical, like oriental land of Shangri-La. I think that's kind of like the lasting power of that film and that like fake place in the Himalayas has really kept on and to what the idea of like exoticism in film is. What even is Shangri-La? It's a made-up place. They made it up for this book and movie called Lost Horizon. The only Shangri-La I know is the hotel chain. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you've mentioned how that idea of the other has changed now, Mm. and especially as we kind of move away from that really, like, Americanized version of cinema. How do you think the idea of the other will change now? I think it's very interesting because... 
like on one hand, you do see this giant rise of foreign cinema, which has always been there, but I think it's finally starting to become accepted in the US as much more mainstream, like with Bong Joon-ho, and then with just like a whole bunch of foreign cinema like entering the American market. And you see that in TV as well, especially. But I do feel as if, you know, Hollywood still hasn't gotten rid of this idea where there'll always need to be some kind of like intruder. Yeah. Whether that's perhaps not a foreign race now, because that's obviously quite unacceptable. But it's almost like how we've seen sci-fi. The other is like an alien. Mm. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other is like the invading species in like Dune, for example. Yeah. Um, the other is like the octopus aliens in Arrival. <laughs> so it's almost like, take it back to like the early 20th century. It was all these kind of ideas of like unexplored lands. Mm. And now it's like the world has become more globalized, like and information and stories are more kind of accessible from places that we haven't really been hearing from traditionally it's now like not like unexplored lands but like unexplored galaxies well as star trek famously says the final frontier yes So, Michael, what you're saying is famously Aladdin is Chinese. Aladdin is famously Chinese. QED, case closed, arrest my case, period. The thing that I really love the most about this movie is it has very unique, detailed and exciting character animation Mm. they're all different shapes and sizes these characters and they move in such different ways like there's a very short squat henchman then there's more characters that are kind of like your traditional action romance leads of an animated film and then there's like one kind of like villainous henchman sometimes the big bad character who has these very very long legs yeah and can you describe kind of how that character moves around? It's like, he kind of reminds me, and maybe this is too spooky a reference, but of Slenderman? Oh, there is a Slenderman thing about them, that's Don't you for mean? sure. He's just like very long. Languid, and like, kind yeah, of. Yeah, and a bit floaty or something. It's almost like he's got either too many bones in his legs or none at all. Exactly, yeah. They're kind of like those inflatable flailing men that you see like at used car yeah, places. Yeah, totally. Even the way that... That the wish dragon moves mm. like because it has arms it doesn't have legs it's just like kind yeah. of more of like a snake a kinda, serpenty kind of yeah but the way it kind of moves through the air and kind of like grabs around things and like interacts with the other physical like characters yeah uh, yeah i just thought it all worked so well yeah i think it works specifically very well in this fight choreography that we mm. see in this movie. This movie at points in time becomes like a proper martial arts film. And got me thinking like, cause Jackie Chan is a producer on this film. And I think he is obviously known as one of the all time great martial arts legends, especially when it comes to cinema. What I think it kind of learns in the tradition of Jackie's martial arts films is that he often will have some sort of obstacle that will handicap one of the fighters in their scenes. Whether it be something like in the 
rush hour films where he's like kind of trapped by something or like he's got handcuffs on or he's got like something trapped around his head so he can't like move properly and there's like one scene in particular Jen that I know you liked Mm. where it feels so much like that kind of obstacle Jackie Chan stuck in something uh, like martial arts type style yeah 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 so he's fighting these two goons and he gets his foot stuck in a door Mm. but then he's using one other foot and his two arms and everything's just kind of I mean only you could do it in like animation truly it was so elegant Mm. all of these fight sequences are so elegant and they never feel overly like violent as Mm. such it's more choreographed choreographed in that kind of comedic way that Jackie Chan brought to cinema exactly where it's inspired by like silent comedies like your Buster Keaton's or your Charlie Chaplin's Mm. and it's great to see that be brought back to like a very child-friendly way with this film. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel like a fight sequence more than like, yeah, what you said, like pure physical comedy. And he also voices the wish dragon long in the Mandarin dub of the film. I was surprised by how much I really liked this movie and it continued to grow on me all the way throughout. Why were you surprised by how much you liked this movie? I think because my expectations for animation are set so high, mm. especially after our experience with the Mitchells versus the Machines a few weeks ago. Seeing like the pictures of this movie, I thought that it would never live up to that kind of thing. But there was enough difference in there and it was doing enough things that you don't see every day in animation while still feeling like, you know, like sweetly and calmly familiar mm. that I really did enjoy wish dragon yeah there's some really cute visual gags in there too which i feel like on a repeat viewing like you'll pick up again i'm kind of the same i thought it'd be quite a simple mm. film a bit th- more kitty than i totally what yeah. I would thought it would be yeah but it really surprised me and and again like the characterization from all of the lead actors like is incredible the animation All of it is just, it's such a rich viewing experience and it's definitely one that you can watch a few times and Mm -hmm. get something new out of every time. If you like listening to The Big Film Buffet, please give us five stars on your podcast app of choice and don't forget to subscribe and follow wherever you listen to those pods. This episode was hosted by Alexi Toliopoulos and me, Jen Fricker. Produced by Michael Sun and Anu Hasbolds. Edited by Jeffrey O'Connor. And executive produced by Tony Broderick and Melanie Marnie. 